Chapter 26, it's page 20, if you have a pew Bible. Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife, and you could have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he was very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much more mighty than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. 
Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found that there was a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in this land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah his advisor and Phicol the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made, with, he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from, from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, daughter of um, Beeri the Hittite, for his wife, and Bezma, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The title of this sermon is A Chip Off the Old Block, and that is an homage to the couple who lived next door to my childhood home in Bimbrook, Ontario. Their names were Chip and Frida. And the man's name was Chip, and he was our neighbor, so naturally we referred to him as Chip off the old block. And as you know, that expression is typically reserved for describing the phenomenon of offspring who bear a striking resemblance to their parents, both in terms of how they look and how they act. Now, uh, Chip and Frida actually were childless, they, they didn't have any offspring, so we never got to see what they would have looked like. Instead, they raised Rottweilers. And uh, the really interesting thing, and I don't think this was just my imagination, I, there was a striking resemblance between the, the dogs and their owners. Anywho, if you prefer, we can use a different expression. We can say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We can say, he's a spitting image, or like father, like son. The, the sheer number of expressions that we have to describe this phenomenon shows you just how prevalent it is, how widespread of a, an experience it is. I'm at the age where all of my friends from high school are on Facebook, and they're posting pictures of their teenaged kids. 
the teenage kids aren't on Facebook. Uh, once we old people got on there, they, they fled. Uh, it's just us parents on Facebook, proud of our kids and posting pictures. But it feels like I am, as I'm scrolling, going through my high school yearbook because these kids look identical to how their parents looked when they were that age. It's basically the same person, just modern clothes and you know, higher quality photos. Same person, though. As John A. Broadus, who was uh, a 19th century Southern Baptist, he, he was a famous preacher, but he used to say, heredity is an immense and tremendous reality. And even that's putting it mildly. Now, in the same way that I'm hit with this reality is, you know, every time I scroll through Facebook, as Jason read through Genesis chapter 26 a few minutes ago, I wondered if you were struck by the uncanny resemblance between Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, th- this is the one chapter in, uh, in Genesis that focuses exclusively on Isaac. You may have noticed this already, how there was a lot of chapters dedicated to the life of Abraham. And you will discover soon enough that there's a lot of pages dedicated to first Jacob and then later to Joseph. Very few are dedicated to Isaac, and this is the main one, Genesis chapter 26. But as you see the picture that emerges of Isaac in this passage, in this chapter, the picture that the narrator posts, if you will, you can't help but just shake your head and say about Isaac, he's a chip off the old block. He is his father's son, for better and for worse. But in addition to the tremendous reality that is heredity, we see from this passage the immense reality that is the faithfulness of God. This has been a theme that we've kept coming back to time and time again. It's God's determination to continue and to consolidate and to fulfill all of the promises that he made to Abraham. This passage shows us that the blessing of God is now passing from one generation down to the next. This passage really is an illustration of Psalm 119, verse 90, which says and and really declares God's faithfulness. He says, that psalmist says about God, that his faithfulness continues through all generations. I think the best way to work through this passage is to draw some comparisons between Abraham and Isaac, the father and the son, uh, the, the chip and the old block. And we'll make a number of these comparisons uh, in a number of different categories. And if time permits, I will have five of these for you. That remains to be seen. But I've got five um, different categories where we might compare Abraham and Isaac And all of these categories, if you're the note-taking type, begin with the letter P. First, let's consider the promises. The promises. If you can remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, you'll recall that the Lord God appeared to Abraham. 
And he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He called him away from his father and his kinspeople and his homeland. And, and he called him into a land that he would be shown. Uh, basically, on that point, God said, uh, TBA, to be announced later. You don't need to know this now. But in conjunction with that call, the Lord made very great and very precious promises to him. In a word, I guess just to summarize, it was a promise to bless him, to make him great in every conceivable way. Now, with the death of Abraham, which we've seen in recent chapters here, we might wonder, well, what will become of the promises now? What's going to happen to the, the promises? Because, the, you know, the promises and vows that we make in our experience, we, we typically understand those to be valid uh, only until death. Uh, valid really only as long as the person is alive. So marriage vows, for example, are only for, quote, as long as you both shall live or until death do you part. And then I guess all bets are off. But that, that's the kind of, we're time-bound people, and so we think about, even about promises and vows as only being valid for uh, the time in which we're alive. But the promises that, that God made to Abraham were not like that. They were promises about offspring and promise about land. And both of those signal something that is enduring, something that's going to last. Indeed, God has entered into an everlasting covenant with Abraham. And it turns out that these promises are bigger than Abraham, and they're going to outlast him. They're going to outlive him. So now that Abraham has passed, the promises of God are going to land on Isaac. They're going to be focused on him, and they're going to be fulfilled through him. So at some point after... Uh, after he's married, but likely before the birth of the twins. We looked at that uh, in the last chapter, and, and so now chapter 26 is going to go back in time even before that. Um, we discover that in that earlier time, the Lord reveals himself to Isaac, much like he had done earlier with his father Abraham. And the occasion for this revelation is also quite familiar. At this time, there is a famine in the land, and Isaac is forced to move from uh, Beir Lahoi Roi, which uh, the area that he had settled in. And he had similar instincts to his to his father, which was in times of struggle and and challenge, like a famine. Uh, the instincts were to travel down to Egypt, a land that always seemed to have plenty of food uh, located as it was on uh, the Nile River. Well-watered land, never seemed to be any kind of shortage. But before he got to Egypt, while he was in Gerar, the land of the Philistines, the Lord God appeared to him and spoke to him. And there are very, there's lots of similarities to... Uh, God's earlier speeches to Abraham in this present speech to Isaac, including, I'll just point out a couple of these similarities for you, including the call. Note that 
in Isaac's case, the call was not away from Ur, but rather it was away from Egypt. It was a call not to go down to Egypt. In addition, it was a call that required faith. Uh, So God says to Isaac, he's calling him to a land that God would show him. A very similar language to what Isaac's father had been called. And it's a call to faith. It's, it's a call to step forward and step out and to, let, to be led by God, to let him guide you even though you don't know the end destination. And Isaac's call, much like his father's, was accompanied by great promises of land and offspring, as numerous as the stars, as you read there, in very familiar language to you by this point, I would hope. And this is offspring that would, in turn, be a blessing to the nations. Now, all of these similarities, I've just mentioned a few, there's, there's even more than that. All of these similarities help us to see that Isaac is receiving the same promises that Abraham did. And in case we missed it, we are told that explicitly. The Lord says at the end of verse 3, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father, it's coming now to Isaac and will be fulfilled through Isaac. Now with the same promises come the same responsibility. So refresh your memory. What was Abraham's responsibility in view of the great promises of God? It was simply this, obedience. Here's the Lord's evaluation in verse 5 of Abraham's life. He said, Abraham obeyed my voice and he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. As we've seen, God's covenant was unilateral, which means that God himself made it and God himself is going to make sure that it is fulfilled no matter what. Uh, These promises don't, at the end of the day, depend on human faithfulness. They depend entirely on the faithfulness of God. Still, the Lord is pointing out that Abraham demonstrated himself to be a worthy participant in all of these blessings, a worthy partner, so to speak, because of his obedience, because how quick and how careful he was to obey all that the Lord had commanded him. And now Isaac, now Isaac, having received the same promises as his father, is challenged to be the same submissive partner and participant in these promises, the way that his father was. The question is, will Isaac be a chip off the old block when it comes to obedience? Well, he's certainly off to a good start. If you look at verse 6, it says simply, So Isaac settled in Gerar. In other words, he did not go to Egypt. He sojourned in that area of Gerar, just like God had commanded him. This is obedience, stated very quickly and very simply. This is exactly what the Lord God had commanded him. And now, um, since Isaac's life is compressed into this chapter, I, I suppose you won't mind if I fast forward a bit, and give you the final analysis of his life as far as obedience is concerned. 
And, and we get some comment on that throughout Scripture where it says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. Um, Jesus oftentimes when he is speaking about the, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal kingdom, he speaks as, of Isaac being there. But we get a really good summary also in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, this is a chapter that we've turned to lots so far to try to make sense of what we read in Genesis. This is the hall of faith. And verse 9 of that chapter says that by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, heirs of the same problem, uh, promise, excuse me, the same promise as Abraham his father. Like father, like son. He's recipients of the precious promises of God. And Isaac now is proving himself to be, himself to be a partner by his obedience and by his faith. So this is great. What a, what a legacy. When you think about this, and, and, and think about your own experience now, isn't it true that there is no greater joy for Christian parents than to know that their children are walking in the truth? I realize that there's not a one-to-one correlation here between what we read here and how I'm seeking to apply this, God has not made specific promises to you about your children and about your grandchildren like he has to Abraham. Still, the Lord commissions you to bring up your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And while it falls short of a a rock-hard promise, the general principle is that we uh, would train up our children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, they shall not depart from it. Again, we, that's a proverb, and, and we're learning in our uh, Sunday school class to interpret different genres in, a different, in different ways, and this kind of wisdom literature is not meant to be read as a rock-solid promise, a guaranteed result, And yet, at the same time, it is a a general principle that the Lord is pleased to to honor and to bless. And my point here simply is, parents, we can and we must demonstrate to our children what it looks like to walk by faith and to exemplify obedience to the Word of God and to expect obedience from our children. There's no heredity when it comes to salvation. Okay, don't misunderstand me. You're not automatically in children and young people because of your parents' faith. But by God's grace, there is such a thing as a godly heritage, such that the Apostle Paul could say to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and then your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. What a, what a wonderful thing to be able to say. What a wonderful thing to see, even in our own congregation. By God's grace, I, I pray that that would continue, that we would have a godly heritage. Well, Isaac is a chip off the old block when it comes to the promises. Let's compare the father and the son next in terms of 
their problems. Their problems. The fact of the matter is that we have a much easier time passing our fallenness down to our children rather than our faith. As joyful as it is to see your children walking in the truth, it is horrifying, I speak from personal experience, to see your same sinful tendencies show up in the next generation. When uh, Prince William, uh, Queen Elizabeth's grandson, was born in 1982, the, the Queen is said to have remarked when she first held him, thank heaven, I, I won't do it in the British accent, but she said it in a very dignified way, thank heavens he hasn't ears like his father. <laughs> Apparently that was her biggest fear, that her grandson would inherit Charles's most prominent features. Now her other grandson, Prince Harry, who as you know uh, in the past year has, has publicly distanced himself from the royal family, well he made news again this week when he opened up on a podcast about how his father handed him, quote, a cycle of genetic pain and suffering a toxic family environment that was cold and distant and harsh. And it was something that Charles himself had no doubt experienced and now had unwittingly passed along to the next generation. Heredity, when it comes to sin, is likewise an immense and tremendous reality. And I'm sure that you've seen this with your own kids how they picked up your ability to deceive and to manipulate, how, how they have the same kind of pride or anxiety. Whether by nature or nurture, the debate always is raging, but likely it's, it's a bunch of both. Your children are sinners, and they sin in ways that are eerily similar to you. In verses 7 to 11, there's a recorded an incident that sounds eerily similar to something that we have read before, actual multiple times before. This has led liberal commentators to believe that this account actually only happened once, and whomever wrote Genesis, and they believe it was a bunch of different people over a long period of time, Anyway, they believe that whoever that person or those people were, they're, they're dummies. And they, uh, they had this story and they, they used it accidentally multiple times and they got all of the details wrong. They were really sloppy in their use of material. That's what the liberal scholars would say about a story like this. The, the narrator is so dumb that he can't, he, he's lost track of whether it happened to Abraham or Isaac or whether it's happened once or twice or, or three times. But trust me, the, the narrator is not confused. That, that's not the issue. Okay? You know, they're, they're thrown off also by the fact that uh, the Philistine king has the same name as when we encountered him before, Abimelech. And the commander has the same name, Phicol. And they think, oh, this is the same story. And 
The narrator's just uh, confused. But the name Abimelech is just a generic term. It's a, it's a dynastic title, similar to the Roman title Caesar. It, it applies to basically anyone that's in that position at that time. And the author of Genesis seems intent that we would not mistake this for a repeated story. Because he says right off the back, look there in verse 1, that this is a different famine than the one that occurred in the days of Abraham. So we're not talking about the same incident here. Okay? We're, this is a different king, this is a different patriarch, but it's the same problem showing up time and time again. And the problem is this. Isaac has a hot wife. And he's in a foreign land where people might not uh, think twice about offing you so that they can have your widow. Isaac gives way to fear. And he says about Rebekah, she is my sister. Chip off the old block. We've, we've been here, we've done that, we've seen this a time or two. What's really interesting to me is that when Abraham used to pull this stunt, Isaac probably wasn't even born yet. It would have been harder for them to pull off the charade if they had a, a child, you understand. So how on earth would Isaac have learned this? That's the freaky thing about sin. It's almost like you don't even need to be taught. Well, there is one slight difference here. And when this happened in the past, God has intervened somehow to, to reveal the truth to the king, say, in a vision. In this case, the truth is revealed by God's providence. Abimelech happens to be looking out one day, and he sees Isaac laughing with, with Rebekah. And uh, Jason read this perfectly a few minutes ago. Uh, and the way that he read it highlights that, first of all, it's a play on words. You will recall that Isaac's name means laughter. And uh, whenever Isaac's talked about, there seems to be a lot of laughter going on. But Jason read it in such a way as to make very clear what this means. The older versions say that he was sporting with his wife. Um, they were engaged in some extracurricular activities. I don't know how, how to put this. But when Abimelech sees this, well, first of all, no doubt he throws up a little bit in his mouth. But then it dawns on him that Isaac has been lying to him the whole time. So he hauls him in and he says something that we've heard before. He says, what have you done? How could you have done this to us? And, and not only was this sin, but it could have very easily occasioned more sin and even greater sin. Abimelech says, someone could have easily lain with your wife and you, that's what sporting means, uh, in case you're, you're wondering, and you would have brought guilt upon us. This, this is very familiar. This whole thing, isn't it? It's like replaying. And once again, it's a pagan king who is on the moral high ground and he's rebuking the man of God. The whole incident 
deja vu all over again. And, and this is our experience, isn't it? Not, not only is the same old sin repeated over and over in, in your own life, your sin is repeated over and over again in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. And it's enough to make you cry out, oh, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me and my children from this body of sin? And the glorious answer echoes back, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You've heard of that expression, haven't you, that says that you can change your family tree? which is to say that you can, you can break the cycle of genetic pain and suffering that you've inherited so that your children don't have to experience it. That's apparently what the Duke and Duchess, Harry and Meghan, are attempting to do. They're attempting to do it. They're failing miserably at it. They seem to be creating a whole new level of toxicity for their family. And when you think about this, this, this should be expected because how can you possibly eradicate the fungus of sin from your family tree when you yourself are so infected by it? What we desperately need is someone from the outside. We desperately need one who is like us, but who is not infected by sin. We, we need one who, uh, who has inherited a sinless nature, from his father and one who has taken on flesh and gone on to live a perfectly holy and righteous life tempted in every way that we are yet without sin and then somehow we need our guilt to be imputed onto him such that he bears it and in our place um, bears the wrath of God against it and pays for the penalty of our sin and then what we need is for that one's righteousness to be imputed to us, to be credited to our account, so that we can stand before God justified and ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. Is there, is there such a one? Friends, this is precisely what, what we have and what is ours through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a new family tree. As Peter puts it, God has ransomed us from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Praise be to God. So we ought now to lead holy lives throughout the time of our sojourning. Peter goes on to explain the time for sin has passed. In the past, we were driven by fear and by our flesh, but now is the time to walk by faith in righteousness and in obedience. Well, having compared Abraham and Isaac in terms of the promise and in terms of their problems, let's look thirdly and uh, more briefly at their prosperity. Their prosperity. We probably don't need to spend the time recapping the prosperity of Abraham. We're quite familiar, I hope, with all of his flocks and herds and manservants and maidservants and enormous wealth. Now, in verses 12 to 14, we have a summary of the prosperity of Isaac. 
amazingly, we hear that he planted crops and that those that what he planted reaped a hundredfold. That's that's really amazing given the immediate context here of famine. You realize that crops are very scarce at this time. It's also amazing given the context, the wider context of the book of Genesis. You'll recall Genesis chapter 3. Think about the, the curse that came into the world and upon the earth because of the sin of our forefathers. It, because of sin, God's declaration was that, that it would be through a whole lot of sweat and tears and thorns and thistles that the earth would bring forth food. You, you get the picture there in Genesis 3 of just kind of scraping by, of eking out in existence. You get the picture of subsistence-type farming. And yet we, we read here in chapter 26 of a hundredfold yield. Not only that, but as we will see, every, everywhere that Isaac digs a well out there in the desert, he strikes water. He's got the, the Midas touch, uh, except with water. And then we read that Isaac became very rich. In the original language, the word is great. And verse 13 is meant to be memorable as you hear it or read it as it says that Isaac was great and he kept getting greater and greater until he was greatly great. It's just like putting it in front of you in rapid succession just how great and how wealthy Isaac was. There's a whole lot of greatness there in that verse. There's a whole lot of prosperity. And the question, I suppose, is why? How? The narrator does not want us to miss the reason. It's not down to Isaac's abilities or his techniques or his personality. There's one primary cause listed at the end of verse 12, and it's this. The Lord blessed him. Furthermore, this was obvious to everyone. For example, King Abimelech and uh, the advisor Ahuzath and Commander Feichel, they come to him in verse 28 and they say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. It was, it was completely obvious to him that the Lord is with him in terms of his presence and that that results in his prosperity. Now I realize that in our day and age, especially in the evangelical church context, the word prosperity is ripe for misunderstanding. There's all kinds of false teachers out there in South America, in Africa, and all throughout the United States, and all over your TV, who teach that God's promise to you, his intention for you, is that you would be fabulously wealthy, that you would have a fistful of Benjamins, that, that you would have lots of bling, and that you'd get to travel around in luxury aircraft. And they teach that garbage so that they can have a fistful of Benjamins and lots of bling and travel around in luxury aircraft. Now there's a lot that could be said against this heresy. But for now, I want you to just understand that one of their big, big mistakes is in thinking that God's promise and blessing to Abraham and Isaac is meant to come to us in exactly the same way. 
As the storyline of Scripture unfolds and develops, we understand that these, these promises that God makes in their fullest sense, in their final sense, they contain, they're, they're about spiritual blessings rather than physical or financial blessings. So Paul can exclaim in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is to say that in Christ we have the most astounding prosperity. Sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, peace with God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, a peace that passes all understanding, joy, love, hope, an inheritance that's kept in heaven. I could go on and on. All of these spiritual blessings are yours in Christ. And friends, that is what true prosperity is. These, these spiritual blessings make necklaces and cash and airplanes look like, like a McDonald's Happy Meal toy that's really just fit for the trash. So I, so I want you to be very clear as to what kind of prosperity you should be expecting. But when other people see these things in you, it should be very obvious to them. And if it's not, you need to make it obvious and explicit with your words that it's not because of your native intelligence, it's not because of your good looks or your charm or your entrepreneurial spirit that kind of runs in your family. It's not because you're an American who has the American dream kind of just built into your DNA. There's only one explanation for why you are prospering, and it's not because you're a self-made man or woman. It's because of the grace and the goodness of God. May, may it be in our lives that blessed is much more than just a trivial hashtag. May it be that blessed is the explanation for our whole lives. All that we are, all that we have, all that we do, it's all because of the blessing of God. Now I need to hasten on to our fourth point of comparison, and that is their peacemaking. I, I promise to be real quick about this, because not only is there prosperity in this passage, there's all kinds of conflict. Actually, Isaac's prosperity is the source of the conflict. It makes the Philistines envious the fact that they are eking out in existence and only scraping by, and it bugs them that he always has a bumper crop, and he strikes water wherever he digs a well. In fact, much of the conflict surrounds wells, and this reminds us of the kinds of conflicts that Abraham had in his life. It, it seemed to always center around a well, and so what happens here is the Philistines start filling in all of Isaac's wells with dirt, which were actually his father's wells. You see, just constantly there's comparisons between Isaac and his father. But hopefully then, you can also bring to mind quickly what Abraham's strategy was in the midst of such conflict. Do you remember that Abraham was a peacemaker? When the, when the land couldn't sustain all 
all the necessary things for his family and for his nephew Lot's family. It was Abraham that told Lot to, to pick whatever he wanted, and Abraham would go what turned out to be the lesser land. And conflicts over wells, and, and Abraham is always the peacemaker. He, he's, he's always seeking to, to die to himself in order that someone else might have the preference. And it's all largely because he wants people to understand that he is who he is because of the fact that God has blessed him and made him that way. But Abraham was a peacemaker. And so we look and see, well, what about Isaac? Isaac is strong. And the, nar- the, the, the natives admit to this. They, they, they come to him and say, you're stronger than, than we are. Okay, you're, you're mightier than we are. And, and so we ask, well, or maybe we would expect, okay, then Isaac, being so strong, maybe he's going to take a stand for these wells that are rightfully his. Maybe he's going to, with, with all of the, the manpower that he has inherited and, and, and been built over the years, he's going to maybe uh, launch an aggressive strike, a military operation. He would certainly overpower them by their own admission, but this is not at all what Isaac does. Isaac just go, moves on and digs other wells. And then those wells are sources of conflict. And so he abandons those wells in order to uh, find some space for himself. Friends, this is peacemaking. It's peacemaking. And I... I want to, I mean, uh, I realize that I appreciated what, what Rob said this morning. I appreciate how the, the deacons have led us, and I'm just really excited about the possibility that very soon we're going to be past all of these uh, social distancing requirements, and we're going to be back to normal, if I could put it that way. I can't wait. But before things totally get back to normal, again, which could be very quick, quick, I'm hoping, I want to just say one more time, just in case you're wondering, I know there's been, a, there's been conflict, even in our church, on these matters, as there has been all over the world and all over the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's conflict. How to, how to handle all of this stuff? And, and it seems to me, at least as, I'm, as, as the battle raged here in our country earlier in the year and now is raging in my uh, home country of Canada, you know, the, the heroes, the, the, the guys that are, are lauded as exemplars in, in the Christian faith are the men that have defied the government and have, have forsaken all, uh, all of the requirements and have, said, have claimed this ground for Christ, the King. The, these, are the, these are the people that are lauded. And, and this is what we naturally, I think, um, really respond to. We want to show, show forth our strength. We, we want to we, we uh, pursue our rights. And you're wondering, why, why has our church taken a different tact? Why are we still requiring masks? 
And if I could just put it simply, it's because we believe that this is for peacemaking. This is for peacemaking. And, and we're, we're seeking to, to do what the Bible's called us to do, which is to honor our government, to love our neighbor. We're seeking to, to just yield to uh, the authority that God has put over us uh, as they seek to lead us through a global challenge. And, and, and we receive the, the charge from all sides that this is, this is weak. This is just kowtowing. And, and again, uh, the, the other side is saying, uh, we, we're standing for the authority of King Jesus. And it just makes me think, well, well sh- should you speak for Jesus? And what would Jesus say about all of this? And here's what Jesus says. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus, throughout his whole ministry, right up until that crucial point where he goes to a cross as an innocent man, refuses to stand up for himself and fight and, and elevate his rights and call upon them. Rather, he's, he's dying to himself and he's dying for us. And he calls us to the same thing. The meek shall inherit the earth. And and don't get me wrong, friends. Meek does not mean weak. Look look here again. Isaac is strong. It's obvious that God has made him strong and mighty. And he's mightier even than the Philistines. And yet he's taking the position of peace. Not only this, but God, at the very beginning of this chapter, promises Isaac that he is going to give him this land. And the current inhabitants of this land are now going to nickel and dime him for all of the wells that he's making. So you, you ask yourself, Isaac, how is it that you can, you can just move on from that well and dig another one in an effort to make peace. How, how are you doing that? And I think Isaac might say, I'm going to, me and my offspring are going to come in to, this is all ours. This is all ours. And this just frees you up, doesn't it? To, to yield and to not fight for your rights, to party or anything, to, to, not, to not scramble for your proper positioning. And friends, we're going to inherit the world. We're going we're gonna to nickel and dime. We're going we're gonna to fight over some trivial little thing that's gone in a year and a half. Let's, let's be people dedicated to peacemaking. Let's be meek because we're going to inherit the earth because of the precious promises of God. Now, you've been very patient, but I want to just very quickly end with this. I want you to notice in the fifth place their prayer and their praise. Their prayer and praise. Yesterday our family went through, went on a hike, which we like to do um, through the forest that's behind our house and it goes behind the, the Wayland School and everything. It's a bunch of paths. It's beautiful. And I tend to get in a zone, and, and I'm very task-oriented, so I get in the zone, and I just blaze on ahead. 
but I regularly discover that I'm by myself. So I, I have to like stop and and I look back and I see uh, there's Johnny, you know, stopped way back there looking at a plant or a tree or a piece of cotton or a track or whatever. Now, I'm the bad guy in this scenario, okay? I shouldn't be like I am. I need to learn to stop and smell the roses. Literally. Literally, that's what I should be doing. Do you remember that that's what Abraham was like? We'd be making our way through the stories about him over the last, uh, whatever, 14 chapters, and, and you look behind you, and there's Abraham stopped. And he's building an altar. And he's calling on the name of the Lord. His prayer and his praise punctuated the whole story of his life. And then you come to verse 23 and 20 to 25, right in the middle of this chapter, on the life of Isaac. And what do we find him doing? Building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. Ah, he's a chip off the old block. He's learned that the, the most important thing in life, especially when God reveals himself to you and reassures you of his precious promises to you, the most important thing is to meet with God, to commune with him, to give him praise and thanks for all that he has done and all that he is. To, to plead with him for his continued blessing, to demonstrate and to declare your absolute dependence on him, not just in the past, but in the present and in the future. Friends, may this be the story of our lives as well. Not just that we enjoy his promises, but that we would put to death our problems and forsake our sin. Not just that we would enjoy prosperity under his blessing, but that we would seek to be a blessing to others. That we would pursue peace. And above all, that we would engage regularly and reflexively in prayer and praise to our God and to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone are worthy. Amen? Amen.